G'day and welcome back to another episode of Bush Yarns. I'm Scotty Connell from Kimberley Spirit and I'm sitting here with uh, Broom Cattle Vet Dave Morell. How are you going Dave? Good Scotty. Happy days. It's um, a bit of a storm coming in. This is the once in a decade storm I reckon hitting the west coast today so there's a bit of a breeze about. Yeah apparently it was really wild down south but I don't think it's going to be so wild here but we'll, looks like we'll get some rain. So we're here in sunny Broom and um well not so sunny broom today it's it's um been a bit of a bit of a funny week um up here but um i'm really excited to have dave on today um particularly for dave's poetry dave's been um if you want to tell the guys a bit about yourself you've been a vet up in this area for a long time and and um poetry is a bit of a bit of a hobby or all right um well i came up here with Mum and Dad and my brother when I was about nine, I think. It was a dirt road pretty well from Carnarvon all the way out to, to, well, to Derby. And then Dad managed a property called Bohemia Downs, which is between Fitzroy and Halls Creek, Fitzroy Crossing and Halls Creek, and also he managed Louisa. Um, so, yeah, I did School of the Air there on a great big Traeger radio that was just sort of a bit past the pedal radio days and um, yeah grew up on stations we did correspondence and most of the time we'd be riding horses and stuff um, then I went away to high school in Northam because there was no high school here it was very few white people up here in those days and I went to vet school did I did um, went to university and did my vet science degree and I did a f few things after that for a couple of years, worked in Esperance, built a yacht, but I came back to Broome, well actually on our way to Port Douglas to, um, to catch up with our mates in the yacht, but I'd lived here as a kid, I'd been a wharfie in Broome and Dad had been a stock inspector here after managing stations. And people said, oh why don't you give Vet Broome a go to, you know, to set up a vet clinic? And I looked at Helen and said, oh well we could give it a go. And, if it doesn't work, I can always work on the wharf. I've done that before. And sort of th so began the uh, vet business that I've now had for 42 years. Um, we couldn't find a place to live and started off in a caravan. Someone lent us a caravan and I used to go around to people's houses and operate on the kitchen tables. And <laughs> I remember operating the caravan at night with Helen, my wife, holding a torch so we could, I could see what I was doing. But gradually the business evolved from there. The government gave me a contract to help eradicate tuberculosis and the cattle on the cattle stations and that, that kept me busy. And then as the years have gone on, the business got busier and, and there's now sort of three vets doing the cats and dogs and three vets doing the cattle work. And I look back and I've been doing this for 42 years. Yeah, it's unreal. And you spend the majority of your time throughout that time out on stations over the last couple of decades, or certainly since I've been a kid. Yeah, probably the majority. Now we do a fair bit to do with the live export, um, processing cattle to go for live export overseas. So that's in town. But yes, I'm still out at stations. It's not TB testing anymore, but it's um, pregnancy testing cattle and fertility testing bulls, uh, maybe disease investigations, uh, that, you know, that sort of thing, the sort of stuff that goes on in large animal production systems on cattle stations. 
Yep, and today you put a few a few um, on the ship. Were you saying thirty four hundred? Yeah, thirty. Yeah, we processed thirty seven hundred to go to Indonesia. Yep. Yep. Um, many of the listeners will know, but um, you did one of my favourite poems um, at at my book launch. Uh, last year which was pretty special you were down there for a boat at the time and it just happened to work really nicely um, for you to get along to that and um, and I've had the privilege of listening to these poems for years as have many many friends and family and that sort of thing um, I've um, Dave's just given me his book a couple of days ago and I've had a chance to look through Dave's been working on a poetry book for the last however long how, how long oh I only sort of really seriously this year but I yep. guess I've Put, been putting the poems together for 10 or 12 years yeah and I, I really enjoy them and I know anyone that spends any time in the bush up in the Kimberley as well as people from overseas that just want to um, get an idea of the Australian life and a bit of background um, and then the poems themselves from someone that spent so much time in the bush with a career like yours is um, pretty cool so um, um, just uh, well with Jerry Jimmy is one that really resonates with me and and will do with a lot of people up in the Kimberley. And you told that really well at, at the book launch. It certainly had stopped the room. We had several, few hundred people in the room that night. It really stopped it. Um, yeah, do you want to tell us a bit about it and then... Okay, Scotty. Well, actually, <laughs> don't know if that sounds conceited, but the poem resonates with me too. I was, I wanted to write a poem that, Describe the displacement of Aboriginal people, which I was a witness to as I grew up on cattle stations. So firstly, Aboriginal people were displaced from their, their tribal lands where they had been living the same sort of lifestyle for maybe 40 or 50,000 years. Um, and they came to live in stations. And my experience of that was very, very positive they loved the station work, they loved riding horses, the Aboriginal ladies would help, you know, with all the domestic chores, cooking and washing, and, you know, the washing was done on a washing board that I remember, which was sort of, we had no washing machines. Um, But I guess there must have also been some sadness sort of moving from their tribal lands I think life as an Aboriginal hunter and gatherer was sometimes pretty hard, especially when there was a drought. So coming into the the cattle stations, people got given warm clothes and food was just handed out. Um, You didn't have to sort of hunt it down. And they were some of the happiest days of my life and I believe of, of many of the Aboriginal people's lives. I'd have to concede that there must have been properties on which there was abuse Uh, not that I actually ever witnessed that but um, it would just be natural that that occurred but we had two different situations you had the Aboriginal people that were maybe only earning two or three pounds a week and you know the Europeans were on the basic wage whatever it happened to be then it might have been 14 or 20 pounds a week Um, and obviously you can't have two different cultures existing in in such dissimilar ways so laws were passed that the aboriginals had to have equal pay now for many of the stations they might have had an 100 or 150 people on their property and they looked after all the ailments 
um, made sure everyone was fed and clothed and generally took responsibility for that whole group of people, which were probably part of a of an original tribal clan or, or, or group. But when the equal pay came in, um, stations really couldn't afford to be looking after everyone and then paying the workers the, the, you know, the, the European basic wage. So many of the stations had to ask the Aboriginals to leave. And there was a lot of sadness, both from the native people and the, the, the station's perspective. Um, and then a lot of them moved into towns, all different towns right across the northern of WA and the Territory, Fitzroy Crossing, Halls Creek, etc. And they didn't have anything to actually do, like um, money was provided in the form of government handouts. Um, and I guess hard work and self-esteem is what makes many of us achieve and, and what we are. Anyway, so many Aboriginals turned to alcohol and um, they ate a lot of fast food, fatty food. They became overweight. There was diabetes problems. Children were in some instances not looked after. And it was quite a sad plight. So I grew up with these people on the cattle stations, went away to high school and university and came back and found many of the people that I'd grown up with, especially the men, were now alcoholics living in town and maybe they worked as stockmen occasionally, but basically they were on the dole and alcohol became a big part of their life and that led to apathy and disillusionment and despair, I guess. Um, and that, So that led to this poem. Mm. I hope that wasn't too long a prelude. But, <laughs> no, that's excellent. Um, so the poem's called Walmajerry Jimmy, and the Walmajerry people lived on the desert sort of south of the Fitzroy River. Um, and as the white man settled properties, they came in to live with them. And the Gunnyandi people allowed, you know, often Aboriginal groups were fairly territorial and one group didn't go into another group's territory and the boundaries were fairly well known. But in this instance, with the whites coming, and, and all territories sort of just being crashed, the Gunnyandi people allowed the Walmajari people to sort of come into their territory. Um, so this is a poem of a, a Walmajari boy who moved to a station and become a stockman. So if you like, I'll... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that context is really important because a lot of people don't understand from the cities, I think it's really neat to, to put that in there. So cheers for that. So I'll see if I can remember the poem, Scotty. So it's called Wamajari Jimmy. Wamajari was the name of Jimmy's clan. They'd roamed this land since time began. They knew every hill and waterhole. This land was part of their very soul. In recent years, the whites had come and started to build a cattle run. Houses, sheds and station stores, roads and fences and station bores. Some of Jim's clan had joined the whites and lived in a camp near the homestead site. The men were part of the mustering team, a job of which Jimmy would later dream. But Jimmy's family had kept to their ways, doing what they'd done for a million days, hunting goanna and kangaroos, bush tucker up plenty from which to choose. Jimmy's dad was tall and strong. His beard and hair were wild and long. Deep scars cut into his arms and chest. 
a tribal man who had passed the test. In 44, the year was dry. Kangaroos in short supply. He chased a roof for half a day through scrub and creek and breakaway. He broke his leg in a nasty fall. There was no one there to hear his call. His blood soaked into the black soil clay. Neath the burning sun he perished that day. His family waited, starved and weak. With hope abandoned and near replete, they struggled into the station base, began life anew at the white man's place. Jimmy thrived in his situation, learning English in short duration. He learnt the ways of the guttier man, becoming a stockman, his ultimate plan. Schooling was done with the manager's son, and they'd laugh and play and make their fun. They'd ride their horses to a river pool and dive and fish in the water's cool. Brothers they were as the seasons changed, learning and growing and views exchanged. Boarding school claimed the manager's son. Jimmy started work on the station run. At breakneck speed he'd chase a bull, jump from his horse, give the tail a pull and throw the bull to the ground. With leather straps his back legs bound. His riding skills noted far and wide. Much to the manager's pride, top rider at many a buck jump show, his name revered where the stockmen go. Where the spinifex has gone to seed, walking cattle he'd take the lead. With his shoulders back and head held high, he fell part of the earth and sky. With his stock horse snorting and sniffing the air, and he in the saddle without a care. He felt like a king that had just been crowned, but his weekly wage was just two pound. The laws were changed around 64 to give the black man more. Now strong grog they could drink all day and for work perform, get an equal pay. In our God's eyes all men the same, but the truth just ain't that plain. A hundred folk with their daily needs, only twenty to perform the station deeds. Their profit figure was non-existent, so their fund request made the bank resistant. The pending decision made the manager grieve because he was forced to make them leave. There was wailing and screaming and protests loud. They were scared and beaten and cowed. They hit their heads and smote their breasts till blood poured down their chest. The blood was mixed with tears of dread as from their land the group was led. Jimmy's body was ripped apart. Something had entered and torn his heart. His body was numb to a rigid state and he cursed his terrible fate. The native reserve was a soulless park. In station life they worked till dark. Now they sat around all day, their desperation on display. Alcohol had never crossed Jim's lips, but out of boredom he took some sips, and he found it dulled his burning pain, so he hit the bottle again and again. Diabetes, claimed Jimmy's wife. Medicines had helped her life, but she died from a complication when a leg was taken in an amputation. That only doubled poor Jim's grief, and he drank more grog to seek relief. With his pain piled layers deep, he was drinking all day till he crashed in sleep. They found him one morning by the walking track. Flies and ants had covered his back. There was no record of his birthing date, but I reckon Jim died at 38. His sons were there to mourn their loss, and I shed a tear on Jimmy's cross as I remembered our childhood fun 
because I was the manager's son. As the wind caresses the Spinifex plain, the grass is swaying to each refrain, and the rising sun makes the country gleam with a breathtaking beauty that is seldom seen. And the hills in the distance have a shimmering haze as the Walmagerry weep for days and Jimmy's spirit is free to roam in the country he called home. So that's it, Scotty. It's amazing. It's an amazing poem, that one, isn't it? And it certainly, and thank you for sharing that with us, it certainly stopped the room, as I was saying that night in Fremantle, um, with a lot of people there. And, and I know... Um, First hand, there's a lot of people um, that come on safaris, on Kimberley Spirit um, safaris that that have heard that because I've just had it um, over the last couple of years and it certainly gives them some understanding of, of what actually took place in the beginning and and um, something I know you're very passionate about is reconciliation mm-hmm. um, and it's something that you, um, that we speak of um, often but, um, and yeah, it's another really another step in that understanding, isn't it? Yeah, I think reconciliation is, is just an understanding. Mm. Um, in the book I'm doing, I talk about St. John Forrest exploring the country and writing glowing reviews and the first Durax and the McDonald's, you know, coming from Goldwood in Victoria to the Kimberleys to settle and then, then the other original settlers came. But the Aboriginals have been here for thousands of years and... Um, they were fairly territorial, as, as I said before. But all of a sudden, they see hundreds of cattle just marching through their, what they call their country and uh, just with disregard to any territory. And for them, first seeing cattle would be for, like us seeing a dinosaur walk down the main street. <laughs> they, and, but after they got over the initial shock, it would have been like looking at a McDonald's, like, you know, there's a lot of free food on that animal and they had no concept of ownership or you know owning animals there were wild animals and if you needed food um, you know you hunted them for food if you could so they felt it was quite all right to you know to spear cattle and eat them but for the whites the cattle represented their wealth and they'd probably borrowed money to purchase them and they'd represented maybe three years of droving to the Kimberleys and a lot of bloodshed and anguish, represented their children's education and, and uh, you know, their future wealth. So there's two completely different viewpoints and that those different viewpoints led to if an a- a- Aboriginals may have speared an animal, there's retribution, and retribution led to massacres, which were quite common up until, you know, 1930s. And, that, you know, they were terrible, terrible events. And in the lifetime of Aboriginal people, um, you know, that's only 90 years ago, which is, is fairly fresh history. But so for me, reconciliation is each side understanding the other side's viewpoint if that will ever happen, and each side having some forgiveness. Um, if it came to retribution, obviously the whites with guns and horses were um, much more in a much more powerful position than the Aboriginals. Um, and yeah, we had some terrible, terrible things. And I guess ret- uh, reconciliation is us recognising 
the huge displacement of Aboriginals and the sadness and pain they've gone through. And personally, for me, it would be asking for forgiveness in some way. Yep. Yeah, it's big. <laughs> it's, re- it's really big. And, and I know I'm certainly reading reading through the book. And now this is going off to a publisher and, and that sort of thing shortly. Um, but reading through it, it really is a roller coaster of a ride in that, in that way. And that's what poetry sort of, well, your poetry essentially is, isn't it? Because you have lots of highs and lows and, and the real journey. It really takes you across the Kimberley. And um, something, there was some stuff in there that was amazing about your time with McAlpine, with him sort of setting up here in Broome and, and you know, having the, um, we had a, you know, we had one amazing zoo here in the Kimberley. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, I was lucky enough to be the zoo vet. And when I got to know Lord McAlpine a little bit and I said to him, look, I don't know much about the zoo animals, but if you give me a chance, I'll, um, I'll be an asset to you. So he sent me to zoos in um, San Diego Wild Animal Park and San Diego Zoo. And I work with a bird vet in Chicago to pick up a lot of those skills. And I was lucky enough to bring many of those animals back from England to here. The, he charted a, a wide body Boeing around the world. We was just crammed to the boards with um we had red lech we Tunga, priswalski horses nilgai nyala gemsbok adax skimmer the horn oryx <laughs> things i probably can't even remember now pygmy hippos and eventually they all got to the pearl coast zoo and um most of them bred here quite successfully yeah it's amazing and there's a lot of people um yeah really don't know anything about that they see the zoo cafe down there and they think oh you know it's a bit of a novelty name but there's actually a 150 acre zoo in behind um that that area in the bird cages and all that sort of thing just just opposite cable beach yeah yeah and he had, he had nearly every african australian parrot except two or three there was about five five am i exaggerating three kilometers of raised walkways and the animals were in 10, 12 acre enclosures with, you know, water ponds and streams and you could sort of walk through at an elevated uh, height and see them. It was sort of far ahead of his time and I, maybe he thought Broome was going to go gangbusters with tourism and that they'd be able to support the venture. But yeah, it's, it's, that's a topic I'd love to speak more about because there's so much in that. Um, but another um, poem is Sundown Ellery. All right. Um, and I really enjoyed reading that one. And, yeah, just sort of might want to... You, you want that poem? I would love love to hear it, yeah. Yeah, I hope I can remember it. <laughs> um, well, There's so just, many in there. How many is in there? There's, I was a bit over 30, I think. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, this is one of my early poems, so it probably will flow when I say it, if I can remember it. But when you read it, it may not have perfect rhyming or, or, or rhythm. But as I said, we ca- I came to the Kimberleys to Bohemia Station when I was about nine. And things were really remote then. There were very few white people around. And, you know, the cars were little, tiny little short wheelbase Land Rovers. When um, the mustering was done, everyone went out with pack mules. And, uh, you know, Dad would go out for months at a time mustering cattle. And all their food and utensils were carried on packs on, on, on mules. And they'd... As they went through the country, they'd muster the cattle and, and then eventually bring them into a yard near the station where they were drafted up and whatever. Uh, but this, so this poem, and because things are remote, it wasn't like you can go down to the supermarket and get 
oranges and lemons and carrots and tomatoes. Uh, so a lot of the stuff was canned goods. Anyway, you, you, you'll find out what I'm talking about in the poem, if I can say it properly. <laughs> this is called Sundown Ellery. When I was just a boy in the days of pence and pounds, I grew up in an outback station called Bohemia Downs. The house is more a shed, no gyprock walls or ceilings, no fans above the bed. The washing was done on a washing board, even the dresses mum adored. The food was cooked, but the bread was baked for quite a few on a metas number two. The native camp was 63, they were like extended family. The able men were stockmen, some I still remember. Ringer Gordon, Benny Dockman, Schmiler, and one man we called Hitler. The women helped my mother with washing, cooking, and one thing and another. Schooling was done in a rusty shed where lessons were learned and books were read. At night we'd hear them singing, to me a mournful sound. The night air would be ringing to the clacking of the boomerang and the pounding of the ground. The only fresh fruit that we got was from mum's veggie plot. Fruit and beetroot came in tins, labelled IXL. We had sunshine powdered milk, which came in tins as well. One day my mum gave voice to her concern. Now listen here, my husband dear, since we've got a thousand cows round here, don't you really think we could get fresh milk to drink? So Dad, in order to avoid a row, said he'd draft off some milking cows. But these are rough and ready short on girls, not your Frisian or your Jersey pearls. Well, the first time that we milked them, you really should have been there. It was a circus to behold. Each act would play itself, then the next act would unfold. One cow broke the milking bale right off its steel hinges. She cleared the yard's top rail with a bale still round her neck. She made that bale a wreck. One poor man got kicked right in his private parts. He was rolling around on the ground and letting out big farts. The milking bucket got kicked to kingdom come. The man that did the milking scored a broken thumb as the ladies from the camp came down to see the fun. <laughs> the cows put up defence and tried to bust the fence. They wailed and shrieked with laughter and slapped their sides in mirth. For an impromptu performance, they got their money's worth. With the milking finished, we felt relieved and tried to reckon what we'd achieved. The sum total of the milk we got didn't quite fill Dad's quart pot. Nevertheless, the milking ritual became a regular occurrence and part of our routine, and the job of getting in the milking team fell to me and an esteemed old native man called Sundown Ellery. We made a handsome pair, Sundown mounted on his mare and me looking pretty cool on Billy Mile Mule. <laughs> now Sundown was a man of religious education and he thought that proselyzing should have been his life's vocation. So he considered it his duty to help in my survival with lessons from the Bible. He talked about that Christian bugger Jesus doing miracles in Halls Creek. And of old man Moses who came from further north. How by holding up his hand he stopped the Fitzroy River and into the promised land the righteous he'd deliver. He talked about the Gospels and the plotting Pharisees. He liked Ecclesiastes, where it speaks of Solomon's excess, where he had 500 women that he could take to bed, where he had a thousand horses that needed to be fed. 
How he bought cast wine and pallet lots, and hid his piles of money in ancient earthen pots. How he had ten thousand men that he could put to war. Of Solomon, old sundown was really struck with awe. He said, if God helped Solomon that way, think what he might do for you and me today. Sometimes I fondly think about those childhood days, though the images have faded to a half-forgotten haze. And I look at what my life has been, the troubles and the strife, the violence and the rows, and I think of sundown and bringing in the milking cows. And I wonder if my life may have been a little more genteel if I'd listened more to sundown and his wise and learned spiel. Brilliant. <laughs> so that's, that, so that, that's what it was like. Yeah. It really, that really happened. It, yep. it Bible lessons and we'd get the milkers in each afternoon. Yep. Yeah, it's unreal, hey. Um, I, don't, I hate to push you because you've got, you've got so many, but um, we are running against the clock a little bit and it's, it's um, getting a bit late here. But Riley's Yard um, is another is, um, that I'd love to hear and then we'll probably probably call that the last one and we'll we'll, we'll have to um take on another time and um that sort of thing but what do you reckon about that yeah no worries scotty awesome R- riley's yard will take about five minutes i suppose if that yep. works yeah epic uh this is actually a made-up poem yep. but but the, the characters like nita station exists and keith bolger exists who i mentioned in the poem yeah and having said that um i have seen many yards built in inappropriate places and I have seen cattle after a cyclone walk into the sea and get, um, you know, chewed up by sharks and, and you know, really um, the, uh, the sharks have really devastated them. Yeah, right. Okay, the right poem's called Riley's Yard. That's a wild thought. Yeah, yeah I flew over <laughs> Wallow once and, and, saw, and saw that. <laughs> That's crazy, isn't it? Um, now Riley was a man with a stubborn streak when he built his yard near the Meter Creek. It was a hundred yard from side to side near the clay pan flat where the creek runs wide. A gravel road would run to the ramp, it was Riley's thought to beat the damp. He wanted a yard where the trucks could get, even in the middle of the biggest wet. Keith Bolger was a man of considerable age and he'd retired at Meter on a meagre wage. He'd seen the seasons come and go, the wildest cyclones, violent show. He heard of the yard on the clay pan flat and he said to Riley, I wouldn't do that. I remember the flood of 52 when the water there was deeper than you. But Riley was a man with an arrogant streak and he looked at Keith and started to speak. This'll be a yard like you've never seen, one of the biggest that's ever been. We'll bury the posts in three foot six and fill each hole with a concrete mix. We'll weld the rails with the welding team and double the welds at every seam. A shaded roof to cover the pound, a Warwick crush will bolt to the ground. This yard so, if we get it wet with a clay pan floods, this yard so strong that it won't budge. With floods much bigger than in the past, I'll eat my hat if this yard don't last. Bolger turned and walked away, his scepticism on display. He wasn't a man to argue the toss, especially with his stubborn boss. 
He pegged the yard at the clay pan site and trucks bought steel day and night. The post holes dug to three foot six and the posts made firm of the concrete mix. The rails were measured and cut to length and welded double for extra strength. The gates were hung and the gates were swung. Riley's heart swelled up with a lofty pride and with choked emotion he nearly cried. It was a February night at half past nine. Kelvin's voice on the telephone line. Indonesia's sure to meet. They're offering a price that's hard to beat. We need 2,000 Brahmin greys to load a ship in seven days. Meter station's the only one with an all-weather road where the trucks can come. Now Riley was a man with a greedy streak. When he built his yard near the Meter Creek, as he did his maths, his eyes got bigger and his heartbeat raced at the final figure. 2,000 head through the drafting gate, 400 kilos average weight, 3.30 a kilo on the place, each one weighed through the drafting race. He'd pay for his yard in one fell toss with money left over for his running costs. His owners would drink a toast to him. His ringers would brag and boast of him. So they mustered north and they mustered west and the cattle they mustered were all of his best. The cattle flushed from the scrub and rock. Men on horseback walked the stock. Two days drafting to the drafting pound, so the cattle selected were fat and sound. The tail culled for sale at another time, so the cattle selected were an even line. That night, when the men were having tea, someone said, There's a cyclone brewing out to sea. It's got the power of an atom bomb, and it'll cross the coast before too long. Now Riley was a man with an arrogant streak when he built his yard near the Meter Creek. He looked down his nose and he sprouted forth. The blows never cross this far north. You can rest all night in an easy way and we'll load the trucks in a lighter day. The men were exhausted from the work and heat. When they hit the sack they were all dead beat. An eerie silence when they went to sleep. Not a breath of wind, not a moving leaf. The sky was clear on a starlit night and they slept as deep as a dead man might. As soon as the station lights were out, the cyclone turned itself about. She picked up speed to 30 k's, poised for havoc in the next few days. The first drops fell like pumpkin seeds, and the, then the, the wind, at, at 2 a.m. the wind gained speed, and the first drops fell like pumpkin seeds, and the rain fell down like a waterfall, and the wind began to howl and squall, and the lightning flashed, and the thunder crashed, and the wind was roaring with a terrible sound, and the rain smashed into the sodden ground. Riley woke from his sleep at last to a thunderclap like a cannon blast. He leapt from his bed in mortal fear and roared off in the truck in lowest gear. But only two k of ground did he gain when the truck bogged down in the black soil plain. He cursed the truck and he cursed his luck. He cursed the rain and he cursed his God again and again. The water's roaring down Meter Creek, bucking and splashing the outlook bleak. The level rose at an astonishing rate and soon it was lapping at the new yard's gate. The cattle bawled and shook with fright, circled the yard in their desperate plight. A lightning flash showed the whites of their eyes, each thunderclap a new surprise. All as one they charged the rails. The hit measured five on the Richter scales. Thirty head of steers were crushed when the panic mob first rushed, but the post stood strong and the welds held on. They both survived that first onslaught. 
but it was only some time the yard had bought. Their weight combined was a thousand ton and they hit the yard at near full run. As a metal tore, the night air screeched and the side of the yard was breached. The post bent down and lay on the ground. Legs were broken where the steel tangled. Bodies were trampled, maimed and mangled. And the lightning flashed and the thunder crashed. And the wind was roaring with a terrible sound. And the rain flashed, smashed into the sodden ground. Blinded and lost, they galloped as one and headed for the creek in a suicide run. The whole mad mob crashed over the bank and to the bottom of the raging creek they sank. Then rose to the surface, gasping for breath, fear in the rise as they headed for death. The creek was a torrent that carried them high, then it gushed under pressure to a river nearby. The river ferocious in its power and its might, then it spilled out to sea near the bite. The cattle were helpless against the power of the flow and they bobbed like corks in a mile-long row. The sharks fret in frenzy for a week at least. It was a horror to behold when they attacked a beast. And the crocs dined out for a month or more on the bodies of the beasts that were washed ashore. They say 1,200 head perished that night. But the true exact figure could never be right. Bodies were found in the forks of trees and the smell of rotting was strong in the breeze. Riley packed his bag in a vacant stake, state and he bowed his head as he shut the gate. His spirit was broken and his mind was mute as he drove from the station in his tray-top ute. Something had snapped inside his brain and he never went to the north again. A bit of action in that one. <laughs> yeah, it's wild, isn't it? And it really, especially sitting out here in the elements now, we're getting absolutely pumped by mosquitoes. We are. <laughs> We've both been dancing for the last 15 minutes or so. Um, got a bit of cloud and a bit of wind and, and all that sort of thing. But just thinking about those elements, you know, it's the reality, isn't it, up here in the north? You get the heat, you get the cyclones, you've got, you know, you've got some clowns out there that are happy just to keep charging, keep pressing forward. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it gets in the wet, it gets bloody hot and humid, and you can have some violent storms, and the rivers can run 20 k's wide. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? That's incredible. The, um, a, a lot of the other stuff in it that I was reading you know, about Nullagine and about, about working out in these yards when it's 46 and, and all that sort of thing, I think um, yeah, there's, a, there's, there's so much more of this story, but I want to thank you for, for sharing what you have already with us, and we'll get out of these mossies and... And call that a day, but I look forward to um, yeah to having you back on at some stage to tell a few more, and especially closer to the um, completion of the book that we can share a bit more with people on how they can get it and and that sort of thing. No worries, Scotty. I, I'm I really like sharing my love of the north, and I mean this is my country. This is really, I mean I've I've been to Perth. I've lived in Perth for periods, but this is this is my country. What I've experienced, and it, you know through my book, I want to share this with as many people as I can, and. And, and sort of give them that insight and mm. and a more of a depth in the geography, I guess, you know, do you call it the demography or, you know, mm. about the people and, you know, how things are done here. Um, and I hope, you know, maybe some people find it inspiring. Um, I don't know, I hope those things come across okay. I wasn't too loud or made too many mistakes. <laughs> or... No, no. I'm certainly inspired by it, and especially being here in Broome, um, there's not a lot of people from Broome that really, really get the bush. Obviously, the station side of life because we're here on the coast. Yep. 
Um, and of course, I've been in Kanata the last 15 years, and I understand it a lot more now because I've spent so much time inland away from the coast. But I think this will give them a, a taste for it. And like me, I've been here for the last week, and just going through that last couple of days really took me back because I miss the bush when I'm on the coast these days, not the other way around like it used to be. Yeah. So. Um, oh well, I hope your podcast goes well. You know. And, yeah, um, no, it's excellent. One. If, if I get this book done, you can give it a plug too. If you've got a good audience. Absolutely. Look, looking forward to doing that already. One thing at the end of the book that I loved as well was um, after all this sort of chat was um, just the mention of your family and and. Um, and particularly the honouring of, of Helen, your wife, and saying she's the glue that holds the family together. Um, I really, really love that. I really thought that was unreal because I've known Helen since I was in primary school, since I was a kid, and, and all you guys. Yep. And, um, and I've certainly seen that, and every family's got that. Yep. And um, what a blessing she is to your family and, and to, to your life. Oh, yeah, if she, was, she wasn't the rock, she was. Uh, and the glue she is, um, the fa- you know, I was a bit of a wild boy when I was younger probably, and I've settled down <laughs> now, but she sort of held us all together and she's worked incredibly hard to hold things together because often I wasn't here and she's running the house and the vet clinic in the early d- days. So, yeah, yeah, we couldn't have done it without Helen. Yeah, no, that's awesome, mate. I really, really um, respect that a lot. And, and thank you again for coming on and look forward to sharing this with everybody and having you back on again. Cheers, Dave. No worries, Scott. It was a pleasure. Excellent. See you later, guys. Thanks for listening.